You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where we're going to be this morning. Deuteronomy 24. We're going to be out of Genesis today. And go ahead and stand, if you would, as in honor of reading of the scripture this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm just going to take a week out of Genesis uh, just for a few different reasons. Most of you know um, that I was uh, out last week, this past week, uh, really the last couple of weeks. I went down to to, uh, Georgia and preached at a a preacher national fellowship meeting um, with some preachers down there. And it was a a good experience, good opportunity. And God seemed to bless that message, and I'm grateful for it. And then um, we, our family took about a week vacation down there. Uh, Georgia was raining too much. It rained the whole time. So we went down to Florida where it wasn't raining and got some good sun and uh, enjoyed the weather and blue skies down there. And, uh, but we're glad to be back, especially when you come back and the weather is like it is here. Uh, one year ago uh, today, I was here for the weekend and our family came up for the weekend, Brother Spencer was gone. It was before I, we actually moved here. And one year ago today, the high, I distinctly remember the high was minus two. <laughs> so um, I'm thankful for today. The weather today is nice. And I know this is unseasonably warm, I think, but we'll take it. We, we'll just take credit for it. We brought it back with us. We'll just say that. How about that? Deuteronomy 24 and verse 14. It says... Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge, but thou shalt remember that thou was a bondsman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that, thy, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger." For the fatherless and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. And it seems a a bit of a random passage to choose uh, here. Moses wrote Deuteronomy and wrote these out as a revelation of God to his people. Uh, But there's an important lesson I think that we could learn in this passage, and that is we need to remember what we were. It's good for us at times to remember where we came from and let that affect how we deal with other people. Let's pray. 
Father, I love you, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. I pray that you would help me to step out of the way and not be a hindrance today, that you would help me to convey this very clearly. I'm grateful uh, for the good attendance this morning and the good spirit. Uh, But Lord, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Unless you meet with us and speak to us through your word, God, we have met and just killed time, and we don't want that. Father, we ask you to speak. Use this passage to change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A few years ago, it was announced that Harriet Tubman would replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. And there's apparently been some controversy about the decision, which is has delayed the decision for a couple of years. But when, it, when they first announced it, I think it was about four years ago, I, I found it to be a very interesting gesture. I mean, not that it really affects me that much. I, I will always see a lot more Washingtons than I do Tubmans or Jacksons. But um, $20 bills, what, whatever one's political take on the decision is, Harriet Tubman's story as a person who came from nothing to make a difference in other people's life is a fascinating story. And I wish I had more time to talk about her this morning. She escaped slavery and became a leading abolitionist uh, before, even before the Civil War and during. And even though she gained her own freedom, uh, just like Moses did in Exodus, they called her Moses back then, she became the famous conductor on the Underground Railroad, like Moses, leading people from bondage to freedom. She had a passion to help others experience the same freedom that she had discovered. She risked it all. She risked that freedom to give others the same opportunities that she enjoyed. And we'll come back to her later, uh, but I want to just plant that seed thought in your mind about Harriet Tubman as a person who came from that life and, and was willing to risk it all to go back and help other people jo- uh, join her in freedom, to help see them break their bonds of slavery and enjoy the freedom that she enjoyed. And that passage, uh, her story reminds me of a principle that I, have, I see here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's written to masters, judges, and the wealthy. This passage is written to the masters, it's written to the judges, and it's written to the rich. And the theme of our text today then is how those in a position of means should treat those that are not in a position of means. So you've got masters, and you've got judges, and you've got the wealthy, all people of means. And what Moses is doing, what God is inspiring Moses to write here, is to help those with means know how they should treat those that don't have the means. Verses 14 and 15 were written to masters. Look at it. It says, Thou shalt not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land, Within thy gates at his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. These were, these were masters, meaning these were primarily employers uh, with employees that worked for them. And, and he starts by saying, don't oppress them, don't overload them with work, don't be too overbearing, take good care of them, don't oppress them which is a good example or a good lesson for those that are employers with employees to make sure that you treat them well. And he's saying, those of you that are masters that have means, you should treat your employees well. And then he says in verse 15, he talks about, at his days thou shalt give him his hire. 
Uh, you see, in, in that day, what he's saying is be faithful and be punctual in paying their wages. The typical arrangement in that day, in this culture, was payment at the end of a day's work. So, you, you know, and you see these places um, in temporary work or uh, places where men go to try to find work for the day. And that'd be similar to what was happening here in that they would get paid at the end of the day. And if a person works uh, for, by day, day by day wages, then he's probably living hand to mouth. And he probably needs that money that day after work to go to the market and buy food for his family. So it's very important what Moses is saying is it's very important to be faithful, to be punctual. Those of you that are masters, to be punctual in the way that you pay. Pay every day. Make sure that his family can eat. It says he setteth his heart upon it there in verse 15, which means that if this is a very important thing to him. They were, they were, it was extremely important for him to be paid on the day. He's depending on it as, as God's provision to help his family survive. We don't know about that very much in our country, and maybe some were raised in a different, a different world and a different country or a different setting, but most of us don't know what it's like to live hand-to-mouth in that regard, in that the money that you get that day is the way that your family will survive that day. And so God is just telling them through Moses that you need to make sure you take care. If you're a master, take care of your employees. Um, if you don't, he'll be sorely disappointed and then you will be guilty of wrongdoing yourself. And then in verses 16 through 18, he gives a command to judges. And these verses teach personal responsibility. Look at verse 16. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for their father. For the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And what he's saying is personal responsibility. Parents don't pay for their children's crimes, and vice versa, children don't pay for their parents' crime. And it was common in the Middle East back then in that culture for the family of a criminal to be involved in his punishment. But God makes it clear that's not the way he wanted the judges to operate there in Israel. And there may have even been times, and you say, well, there were times, I mean, I think of Achan and his whole family being destroyed. And there were times that, that God punished multiple generations for something like idolatry or in that case stealing on, or, or maybe a whole country on a national level. But that's God doing it. It's his vengeance. He's telling a human judge, that's not your place. The, the children shouldn't pay for the crimes of the father. The father shouldn't pay for the crimes of the children or the mother. Uh, every man, it's personal responsibility. And when God makes an exception, we let him because he's the, he's the ultimate judge. And he has the right to, to make that decision for himself. Verse 17, it says that it shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. And he's saying in legal cases against others, it, it was up to the judge to not allow someone who may be innocent to suffer just because they don't have means. Uh, in other words, if a person comes in and they don't have money or, or they don't have friends uh, to, to be witnesses in their case, they don't have means, basically then it's the responsibility of the judge to make sure that everyone is on equal footing. The judge was to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. And if you've ever been in trouble with the law, um, be thankful that in our country that, that, you know, that you can have a lawyer appointed to you and, and you have some help in some case like that because many of us wouldn't have the means to just have a lawyer ready to call. And so that's the idea. Uh, it's amazing when you read through the books of the law 
how much uh, of the law of, of our country is established on principles you see in the book of the law that God gave through Moses to the children of Israel. And then he gives the final instruction. So you have, and I'm sorry, I'm just explaining the text here so we have an idea of how it's working. Um, you've got those that uh, are the, the judges. You've got the, uh, what was the first one? I'm, I'm missing it here. The masters. You've got the employers. You've got the judges. And then you have the wealthy. You have the rich. And that's who he's talking to in verses 19 through 21. He says, when thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. So he goes then and he talks about, don't beat again the olive tree, leave some for those that come together, or the grapes, leave some. What he's saying is, be kind and, and be charitable to the poor by following the laws. And there was laws of gleaning, given in Leviticus 19. And these laws were implemented to give the foreigners or the widows and the orphans an opportunity to gather food since they wouldn't have an inheritance. They wouldn't have property. They would have no way to go out and, and make money or, or spend uh, or a place to, to buy food for themselves. They would not have the means. And so those that were wealthy, those that had property, those that had crops, they were to leave some for the poor and the widows and the orphans to come through and glean for themselves. Certain crops and, and produce would be unripe or, or maybe it would just be missed during the harvest. And God commanded Israel to leave it for the less fortunate to gather up. I mean, it's an incredible gesture on God's part to be that merciful. Uh, because all you ever hear, it seems like these days, is how God is such an angry God and, and God's a God of wrath and judgment. And I don't understand the Old Testament. And yet you look at gestures like this. And God says, if you have the means, leave some for those that don't. Leave some for the less fortunate. Makes me think of the story of Boaz and Ruth. And how over in the book of Ruth that Boaz ordered handfuls of corn to be left on purpose for Ruth to come along and pick up. And God blessed him for it. The end of verse 19 mentions that God will bless the one who considers the poor when harvesting his crops. And, you know, I could spend a lot of time, that's just in a nutshell, as a summary. We could spend a lot of time in these verses this morning. But all of these commandments to Israel are illustrations of a mindset that God wanted the children of Israel to have toward those that have less. See, there are two people, two categories of people in this passage. You've got the haves and the have-nots. You have the haves, those H-A-V-E-S, the haves, and then you have the have-nots. The masters and the judges and the rich over here, these are all people of privilege. These are people of means. These are the haves. But the servants, the orphans, the widows, the poor, these are the ones without means. These are the have-nots. And if we could summarize the text we could say that God is helping the haves to know what their attitude should, should be toward the have-nots. He's teaching those that have the means and that have res the responsibility and have resources and have property and have a position, those that have, uh, those that have resources, those that have the means. He's teaching them the attitude that they should have toward those that don't have anything, that don't have resources, that don't have wealth, that don't even have a way to buy bread at the end of the day, that they don't even have somewhere to go 
to find food and they don't have new clothing. He's telling the haves how to treat the have-nots. And if we could summarize it, that's how you would summarize it. He's helping them to know the attitude toward those. See, God has always had a special place in his heart um, for the have-nots. He's always had a place, a special place in his heart for the weak and the underprivileged. He views them with compassion. He views them with mercy. And he sees them as still having value. You know, we've talked about in the last few weeks out of Genesis 1, how God created man and he formed man. And, 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 and the world will look at, at God and say, well, you know, Christianity is the reason that we have conflicts in, this, in our world. And Christianity and religion are the reason for conflicts. But if we would all go back to the mindset that God has toward every individual soul, we would see that God has places great value on every person. And if we had God's mindset about people, we would value people. We wouldn't want to steal from someone or take someone's life or go to war with someone. If we would go back to the mindset God had at the very beginning, there would be peace. And, and yet we miss that. We miss that God places value on every individual soul. There's nobody that God overlooks, even the weak, even the poor, even the underprivileged. He've used them with compassion. It's God's desire to see the fatherless and the widow and the poor taken care of. Um, consider the fact that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ. Did he send his son, Jesus Christ, as a have or a have not? He sent him as a have not. He sent his own son as a stranger. No place to be born. No place to lay his head as a man in his ministry. No place even at the end of his life. Not even a place to be buried. God, God's son was a stranger. God loves the stranger. God is looking to provide for the person who is down and out. What a wonderful God of mercy we serve, folks. And his message through Moses here is that God's people ought to have that same attitude toward the have-nots. And what's interesting is that God tells the children of Israel, um, he, he says, I want you to use this mindset as a motivation. Look at verse 18 and verse 22. It says, But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee hence. Thence, Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Verse 22, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman, a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. You know what he's saying? He's, he's saying, remember that you were a slave. That you used to be, when you were in Egypt, you didn't have freedom. You were a slave. And as a slave, you were a debtor. As a slave, you were poor. As a slave, you lived hand to mouth. As a slave, uh, you had no one to speak on your behalf in front of a judge. As a slave, you wondered where your next meal would come from. As a slave, you had taskmasters that, that kept you in bondage and they treated you poorly. And God is saying, remember how it used to be for you. And here's the message that God is giving his, his people. He's saying, if you're a have, have mercy on the have-nots because you used to be one yourself. If you're a have, have mercy on the have-nots because you used to be a have-not yourself. He gives this message many times in the Old Testament. 
I mean, Exodus twenty two twenty one. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus 23, 9. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10, 19. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 15, 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. You know, this was an important principle from God to Israel. But it is for us as well. See, remember, we, what, we need to remember what we used to be. And if we remember where we used to be and what we used to be and the position we used to be in, then it will affect how we treat those around us. The principle still applies. And we could talk about today. I'm going to give you some applications here. We could apply this to the importance of God's people caring for the physical needs of others. And I, I think that has its place. As Americans, we live in abundance. In comparison to the rest of the world, and you say, well, you haven't seen my checking account. I don't live in abundance. Well, compare your wages to the wages around the rest of the world. You're probably, probably in the top uh, 5%. I mean, just compare what you make to the, to the wages of, of the average person around the world. And we are people of means. We are people of, uh, of abundance. The poorest among us, folks. The poorest among us were haves. All of us. And we ought to be moved at the needs of others. I remember, remember a few years ago uh, seeing a news story of this two-year-old Nigerian boy and his parents thought he was a witch. You know, there's a lot of strange things that are, that are thought in other places. This young boy, they, his parents thought he was a witch for one reason or another, and so they abandoned him at two years old. Well, after eight months, he, he managed to survive for eight months as a two-year-old in the streets of his, of his city there, his village, until he was rescued by some social workers and the pi- there's a picture of him drinking water out of a bottle. And if you haven't seen the picture, you should try to find it. But it moved me when I saw it. Because he's just, there's nothing left of him. Just a, a child two years old or, or three years old. And he's just skin and bones. And he's so dehydrated and so sick that his, you know, his belly is sticking out. And he's drinking out of a bottle of water. And it just moved my heart when I saw it. We should have compassion on people that have physical needs. There should be something in us that when we see somebody that has a need like that, it stirs our heart. We shouldn't, as God's people especially, see something like that and just walk on by and it has no effect on us. It should do something for us. It should do something to us. And if it doesn't do something to us, then I think that probably we don't have the same heart that God has. It should move us. But let me just give you some balance though as a local church that's been tasked with the responsibility of the gospel, our first priority is to attend to the spiritual needs of people. That's our calling. See, there are countless organizations out there that are doing the work that they can to provide clean water and food and medicine to those less fortunately less fortunate. And honestly, I'm thankful for those causes. I'm grateful for those. And I have a tough time when I think about those or see those situations I have a tough time not picturing my own children 
in those settings, in those environments. And I think, what if my family had been born into a, in a country without means? I, I would be extremely grateful for the charity of someone else to give to that cause and help me and my family. But listen, as a balance, those are still targeting temporary needs. See, is important, are they important needs? Absolutely, yes, they are. Are they life-saving needs? Well, yes, they certainly are. But they don't deal with man's biggest deficiency, which is sin. See, the primary purpose of Eastside Baptist Church is a spiritual purpose. We are to be about the gospel. Not so bodies can be fed, but so souls can be rescued and lives transformed through the gospel. That is our first and most important cause as a New Testament church. So the application of this principle, having mercy on the have-nots, isn't in our case primarily about taking care of the physical needs of those around us. Although if we can, we should. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in it. But as a local church, the best application of this passage to us is on a spiritual level. Folks, if you're a child of God, you are a spiritual have. You you have been blessed. You You live in abundance, spiritual abundance. You've received God's blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to live an abundant Christian life. You have an eternal, secure home in heaven that nobody can take away. Praise God for that. I mean, you have the means to a joyful Christian life right now. And it's not dependent on your circumstances. And it's not dependent on your possessions. You can have joy and you can have peace and you can have contentment. It doesn't matter where our country is headed. It doesn't matter if the coronavirus is blowing up. You, if you have a walk with God and you're secure in your position as a child of God, you can have all the peace you ever dreamed of in that relationship no matter what's going on around you. You know what that makes you? It makes you a have. You're, if you're a child of God this morning, then you are a have. And I'm not saying a have is better than everybody else. Let me just clarify that. It's actually the opposite of this message. See, be, to be a have, it's nothing we've earned. A child of God isn't a have because he deserved to be a child of God. He's a have because of God's grace. This is not a matter of pride. It never has been. We had no way, no means... We were, when it comes to salvation, we were fatherless, poor, widows. We, we, all we could do was hope for somebody's grace to step in and extend itself to us. And God did in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. We don't, we don't deserve to be halves. I'm not saying I'm better or you're better because we're halves. The only reason any of us are halves is because God cares for strangers and bondmen. But look again at verse 18. But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. You see, just like the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, we were slaves to sin. We were miserable. We were in bondage. We had very little hope. We couldn't escape by working harder. We couldn't pay our own way out of it. Just like Israel, our only hope of escaping, that sin was the redemption Paid for by our Savior on the cross. See, just because we have doesn't mean we deserve to have more than anybody else. We're all benefactors of someone else, a Redeemer, stepping in and dying on a cross to make us haves. And if we forget that, we will find ourselves in a great deal of trouble, folks. 
If we ever get to the place where we forget how much God has done for us and that without his grace, we wouldn't be where we are. Christ told the church in Laodicea that they were neither hot nor cold and that attitude was disgusting to him in Revelation 3. Listen to what he says to him. Because thou sayest, I am rich. Because thou sayest, I am rich. I am increased with goods. I have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art actually, that thou art wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. God says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That is an affront, that attitude is an affront, and an insult to a God who gave you everything that you have, spiritually speaking. For you to turn around and say, well, look at me, look what I have, I'm rich, I have abundance, I have everything I needed, (laughs) look at me, all my goods. And God actually says, but you don't even know that you're wretched. You're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Without my grace extended, you would have absolutely nothing. The attitude of forgetting what we used to be is repulsive to God. He knows what we are. He knows what we were. So folks, look around. The have-nots deserve to have just as much as the haves. And it's only by God's grace that the roles aren't flipped. God said, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. Well, what thing? Well, for Israel, it was these specific civil commandments, which is caring for the, for the less fortunate. For I have today, this principle takes many forms, but the first one, as Eastside Baptist Church members that I think of today, is reaching the lost with the gospel. See, the ultimate example of giving something to those who have not is taking the gospel to the lost. And you say, well, why? Well, because without hearing the gospel, none of us would have had a chance to be saved. I think about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says, know ye not that the unrighteousness or that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, think about these sins, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Those are the kind of people, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul says then, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's two applications I see in that verse. To the haves, yes, sure, there are those who aren't part of God's family. They don't have hope of inheriting eternal life. But you and I, we used to be in the same position. It was only because God stepped in that we're part of his family. So let's give others the same opportunity. To the have-nots this morning. And you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm a have. I don't think that I am. I don't think that I've ever experienced the relationship. Well, let me just tell you today, if God can do it for the worst of us, he can do it for the worst for you too. I mean, because God has done it. You look around and you see what you see is suits and ties and, and you see people dressed up for church and you think, well, I, I could never be that way. I could never actually, you know, be like that person. Look at them. They're cleaned up and they're polished. And oh, but you don't know us. And if some people in this room could stand up and give their testimony of where they came from. Where they used to be. And you say, well, they're all clean and they've got it all together. 
Well, no, it's only, the only reason that it may look like that on the outside is because God in his grace intervened and stepped in when we didn't deserve it. And there are many in this room, you'd probably be shocked at the testimony they could share with you. But it's just a testament to the work that God can do. And if he did it to the worst of us, he can do it for you this morning. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse every sin. And he wants to do it for you. If you'll just admit that you're, that you're a sinner and, that you re- and receive his payment on the cross for your sins, you came in as a have-not this morning. But friend, you can leave as a have. Don't walk out of this room this morning rejecting the, the, the offer of salvation. Because there's nobody too far beyond the extended reach of our God. But I don't think it's just about reaching the lost either. I believe this principle is given to anybody that has the upper hand over someone else. You see, for example, it should affect the way an employer treats an employee. Because remember, you used to be an employee yourself. This principle should affect all of our relationships. I think about a parent and a child. You know, sometimes, and I can be this way with my own children, sometimes I can be condescending to my children. And I can be impatient with my children. And I can think, look at them and think, oh, what were you thinking? Why would you do something like that? Parents, it would be good for us, okay? Yes, it'd be good for us to ask those questions uh, sometimes to our children. But you know, it would also be good for us to remember that I used to be a child too. Remember what you were. Parents with your children... You know, I think sometimes we get this idea that because we're the boss and we're the leaders of the home, that we can just act however we want to because we have the upper hand. But I want you to think about the fact that God is your father. And I wonder if he looks at you in those situations and says, why would you act like that? Remember that you used to be a child yourself. Husbands and wives. If your, if your husband isn't where he's supposed to be, uh, and why, if your wife isn't where she's supposed to be, um, there can be conflict and there can be a judgment and there can be a condescending spirit toward each other. But listen, everyone's in different spiritual places. And we would do well to remember that we used to be there too. And suddenly we find ourselves with more patience. Suddenly we find ourselves with more love. Suddenly we find ourselves being more generous and being more gentle with people. I I think about, even in this church, I think about how there are those that if we're on a scale of spirituality and over here is just somebody that's just gotten saved and all the way over here is all the people that have been saved for years and years and years and they've got it all together. And sometimes in a church family, we have new people come in and those that are over here look over there and say, I sure wish they would be a little different. I sure wish they wouldn't do, do things that way. I sure wish they'd get their kids under control or I sure wish they, they knew how to act in church or you know, I sure wish they wouldn't be there or do that. And we forget that yes, we may be sitting over here on the back row because we, those, that's where the, the, uh, the experienced Christians sit. They sit on the back row and they judge everybody. Shouldn't have said that. They said, but we, I'm talking, not talking about where you sit, I'm talking about the attitude. The attitude that says, well, you know, they, they just, I wish they would, they would change themselves. I wish they would get on board. I wish they, they, they knew what 
uh, what they should do differently. I wish they were just, you know, kind of get it together because it sure has taken them a long time. And we forget that we used to be over there too. When, when none of us, when we got saved, went from right there all the way to over there. And we need to be careful about having that spirit that doesn't give people room to grow. I think about siblings in this room. And you're an older sibling. And I've seen a lot of older siblings treat their, their younger siblings with not much grace. I had a younger brother myself. And let me just encourage you, siblings, children still at home, especially like a teenager with a younger sibling, um, to have some grace with your sibling. Show them the grace of God in the way that you treat them. Because you used to be that age. You used to be that annoying. You used to be there too. And it's good for us to remember things like this. I think about the teenagers, the young people in this youth group. And, you know, if you're up getting up, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, and you've really got it, you've all got it all together. And these junior high kids come in, and I'm telling you, there's nothing like a 12 or 13-year-old boy in a youth group. I'm telling you. And we can have a tendency to look down on people and not give people the room, the room to grow and forget that you used to be 12 or 13. See, this, this principle applies in many, many ways. It applies in many areas. It's those that have means or those that have the upper hand that aren't treating others with the same grace that they were given. I think about a child of God and somebody who's fallen. You know, somebody who has really gone through the ringer and they've made some bad choices and they're dealing with those choices and you've never been there yourself. And it's pretty easy to look down on people. I think about somebody who's been wronged and the person that wronged them. You know, and there is a, a way, there's a, a certain tendency to be condescending and to be judgmental and to be full of pride if someone's done you wrong. But remember, the only reason that you're where you are is because Jesus Christ redeemed you from the bonds of Egypt. And how many wrongs did you commit against your Savior and let He die on a cross and forgave you for your sins? Ephesians 4, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This applies to so many ways. It applies to those that are in bondage to sin and how we ought to operate and treat them. If you're, you know, if you're wondering how to deal with those who you hold the upper hand over, then we ought, to be, we ought to be gentle and patient and meek and full of grace and loving. Have mercy on the have-nots because remember, you used to be one too. And I think back on Harriet Tubman. What's her connection here? Well, consider why, why she was so passionate about freeing slaves. Is it because they were family members? Well, sure. I'm sure that had something to do with it. Why was she so passionate about freeing slaves? Well, was it because she wanted them to have freedom? Absolutely. Was it because she could do something about it? Yes. Sure, all of those are true. But the main reason that Harriet Tubman had such passion for freeing other slaves was this. Because she used to be one too. She knew bondage. She knew the misery. 
She remembered how it felt. She could still feel the abuse. She carried those scars. She knew how hopeless it seemed. She remembered how she would live in fear. She knew what it was like to be cold. She knew what, what it was like to be hungry. She knew what, that, what they felt because she had felt it. And she refused to forget what she used to be. And there are people all over the world like Harriet Tubman. And they have passion to help people overcome bonds every day. Those that are hungry and thirsty and they're taking care of those. Those that that are in poverty or those that have disease and those that are in drug addictions. All terrible bonds and they're worth fighting against. I even think right now of all the experts around the world that are, that are working desperately and researching to try to find a cure for this newest virus. And I pray they do. But even that is not as urgent as an issue as the bond of sin. Because sin doesn't just kill the body. It will doom the soul to eternal separation from God. It's a bond that must be broken if true freedom is to be experienced. So where is the passion among God's people to help others break that bond? As desperately as scientists and researchers and those in the medical field are out right now looking to find a cure for the coronavirus, why aren't we taking the gospel to our neighbors? Why aren't we inviting people that we come across? Where's the stack of tracks in our pockets and in our purses? We have the answers to the most urgent eternal questions. How engaged are we in reaching those around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ? No other cause is that important. Now God told the children of Israel that the way to maintain that proper attitude toward those with less is to remember where you came from. I'm not saying glorify where you came from. Some of you have backgrounds and I've talked to you, uh, some of you about it I, and you shouldn't glorify it. You shouldn't dwell on it. But it's good for you to remember where you came from. It's good for you to remember that you were a bondman. It's good for me to remember that I was a bondman. Christian, have you forgotten that you were a bondman? Have you forgotten the misery of sin? Have you forgotten how it feels to be hopeless? Have you forgotten the fear that comes when you know you're not in good standing with God? Have you forgotten how empty life can be? You say, well, I got saved young and I never had to experience those burdens. Yeah, but you know what it feels like when you're not right with God. And you can visualize what your life would be if, without Christ. Where would you be? What condition would your life be in? All of us need to ask ourselves the question, how passionate am I about leading those in bondage around me out of slavery to that, to that terrible master? And the ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ. And you talk about a have. He had everything. A position at the right hand of his father, all the glory and power, he, I mean, he deserved it all, but as a, he let go of it. 
And he came to earth, this dirty, dusty planet, and he was born as a human baby. The king of the universe was raised in a carpenter's home, and he grew up, and Israel rejected him and hated him and despised him and nailed him to a cross. And while he was on that cross, his father turned his back on him because he bore the sins of every person that's ever lived. The ultimate have, Jesus Christ, didn't just show compassion to the have-nots, he became one so that every person could be a have. And when he rose from the dead on the third day, he gave us the opportunity to have victory over sin and death. To have means eternal life. Peace and joy today. And friend, it's all yours if you would just simply accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for it. Well, it's worth trading bonds for freedom. Those that have been in bondage will tell you that. It's worth trading the bonds because the freedom is better. See, remember Harriet Tubman. She was driven to help by remembering what it was like to be a slave. But her passion was amplified because she also knew what it was like to be free. She could compare the two. And she knew what was better. I read a quote from her when she first gained her freedom. She traveled nearly 90 miles from Maryland to the free state of Pennsylvania. And as she entered into freedom for the first time in her life. These were her thoughts. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields. And I felt like I was in heaven. See, in that freedom, folks, it's not even close to being as good as the freedom you find in Christ. If you've tasted both bondage and freedom, you know how much better freedom is. Only slaves that have been freed can truly compare the two. So this morning, to the haves, I say, refuse to be complacent about helping others find the freedom by remembering what you used to be. Never forget. But to the have-nots, you can taste freedom today. And the greatest of which is from the bonds of sin. And Jesus Christ offers that to every person in this room. You came in a have-not, but you can leave a have. Let's all stand together. Every head bowed, every head closed, please. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.